All right, everybody, welcome. This is Behind the Wheels. My name is DJ Artistic. I am a DJ based in Los Angeles, California. I want to introduce you all to my co-host, EB. EB, what's good? What's going on, everybody? I am EB. I am a writer, blogger, and a king of blackness uh, based in Brooklyn, New York. A king. King of blackness. King of blackness. That's what it is. So this is Behind the Wheels. On Behind the Wheels, we love to discuss everything involving black music. That means past, present, and future. So we have a lot in store for you all today with a special interview for The Drop as well. So... Uh, before we get into everything, just a quick catch-up. Um, a lot of stuff has been happening the last few weeks. I feel like there's so much to talk about, but one of the biggest things that, that, that I've noticed uh, or, or that I realized is that, yeah, so Drake's new album came out, The Certified Lover Boy. It was memed heavily. <laughs> you saw all the advertisement. It was very well promoted in that aspect. For you to have two memes off of one album is crazy. He had the meme of the album cover itself yeah. with the pregnant women and then the billboard, so... The promotion definitely worked, along with the hype of him having the beef with Kanye. So all that led to him having the top five hot 100 billboard spots and nine of the 10 top uh, top 10 billboard spots. And with that, I mean, I'll say I'm happy that a hip hop artist was able to do yeah. that. Now, do I feel like it's something that, you know, personally, <laughs> I wish Michael Jackson could did that with Thriller. I feel like if Thriller had dropped in the streaming era, we, he would have had the top oh, yeah. nine spots, you know. But the whole thing. Yeah, but yeah, but overall, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not mad about that. I mean, number one is that Way Too Sexy. I think Way Too Sexy is going to be that song of the fall. I think, I mean, the summer's over at this point, so we can say that Essence from WizKid is the official song of the summer, yeah. I would say. Internationally, I don't even, that's yeah. the song of the summer. Internationally yeah. at, the, at this point. Yeah. I don't think, is there a runner-up at all? Like, do we have I, a number two? Honestly, I don't think so. I think Essence is the one. Like, I, I wouldn't, I had to buy the album because I wanted to know, like, you know, right. like Essence is that good that I wanted to hear more. Um, and nobody else, yeah. like no other song, I don't think has gotten that close, like or clo- even close at all to Essence for being Song of the Summer. I agree. I feel like uh, one thing about it is that it took a while to really get there because it came out last year during I the just pandemic, of course. Out. But <laughs> yeah, so it's funny because a lot of folks who are Afrobeats fans were like, yep. "Y'all are late. It's old." I'm like, we're in a pandemic. Give, give us a, us a pass. pass. Like, I think that Way Too Sexy is coming in strong. Is that song of the fall already? Like, it's been mean. Way it's- Too Sexy is probably, I, I mean, I, I listened to the Drake album. Like I said, I'm happy that, you know, he was able to achieve this. And it's a hip-hop artist and a hip-hop album that's doing it. But it's not my favorite album. But the Way Too Sexy was the song that stood out. And I, and I could at, immediately hear it like, oh, yeah, this is going to rock all fall into the winter. Like, this is what people will be listening to. Yeah, for sure. I feel like it's gonna it's gonna be huge. So salute to Drake on that one. And um also we had the VMAs along with the Met Gala, but uh VMAs and some new videos came out. I know uh Ari Lennox had that pressure mm-hmm. video, but we had that Chloe. Chloe is looking like, I mean, I'm never ever gonna be the artist. I mean the, the I'm never gonna be the one to say so and so is the next this and that. So of course everybody's trying to say, okay, Chloe's gonna be the next Beyonce, this and that. It's not about that. I feel like she's the next Chloe, but She's making her mark right now from her performances, her videos, her songs. I was like, late again. Give me a pass. Late to everything. I didn't even realize when yeah. people were like, "Oh yeah, Chloe's new song." I didn't realize it's the song that's playing mm-hmm. on TikTok all the time when I'm scrolling. I just oh, realized yeah. that yeah. watching the VMAs, watching the performance, and I was like, "Oh, so this is the song." I mean, this is who's singing the song. It's a great song. I wish 
like we're going to talk about a little later in the drop. I wish that there was a bridge to the song, you know, with the song structure. Me and you talk about that all the time, like where are the bridges? But I I, I hate, I kind of hate the comparisons to Beyonce because although I think she's great, like aesthetically, like even watching the performance, I saw it. But I want somebody to be the next Beyonce in the way that Beyonce was like Beyonce came and she changed the whole game. Like the industry was scrambling, like the way Janet did in the eighties before her, I want somebody to come and do it and not be, nobody said Beyonce's the next Janet. It was just, this is Beyonce. I want somebody to come and it just be, this is them, you know, whether they are influenced by Beyonce, you know, that's, that's one thing, but don't give me exactly what Beyonce gave us. Just like Beyonce didn't give us what Janet gave us. And Janet didn't give us what like Tina Turner was giving us, like come with something new, but she looked good. She sounded good. Like, I get it. Like, you know, she she's she's running the game right now. She is. And, you know, I've been riding for Chloe and Haley yeah. forever, going back to 2011. So the fact that my first time seeing them was them doing that piano version of Love on mm-hmm. Top exactly 10 years ago. So it's just crazy seeing her even be it's compared a full circle moment. being on the yep. VMAs. Like, it's, it's truly full circle. So salute to them for doing that. So let's get right into it. So the first segment we have is the Rewind segment. <laughs> In this segment, we like to highlight artists, producers, writers who made their impact that we feel are most likely unsung, but just deserve to get their flowers. So with that, uh, who would you like to highlight for uh, this One of my favorite rappers, um, and I can go ahead and say favorite of all the time. He is representing for D.C., born in D.C., was raised in PG in Montgomery County in the DMV, but it's Odyssey. And for people who don't know who Odyssey is, Odyssey is like if you took... Eric B and Rakim and De La Soul, and then you mix them with like a Chuck Brown. So he has that that uh, go-go influence. He has um, this hip-hop where, you know, he's not using profanity. He's not talking about drugs or murder, like, because he wants it to be relatable to other people. Um, his music is like thought-provoking. You know, people will call him a quote-unquote conscious rapper. Um, he's He's honestly had nine albums. He's had a live album. And 10 mixtapes, and that's in addition to being featured on countless other projects. Like, he's produced for DJ Jazzy Jeff. He's worked with the Foreign Exchange, with Apollo Brown, The Roots, Little Brother. Like, is nothing that this man doesn't do. His last album actually came out last year in 2020. But my favorite album by him is one that he released in 2017 called The Iceberg. And... It was, you know, I was still, you know, two years in new to New York. And that album reminded me of what I call home, D.C. It just was that D.C. feel. And he is one of those people that, you know, he's I I would go and say he's unsung. Like people don't know who he is. He's always been an independent artist. So he's gone that route. So he doesn't have this commercial success that a lot of people have. But he has the talent, like double and triple the talent of everybody on the charts right now. So I'm really looking forward to, you know, even though he's my rewind, what he'll be doing next because he he's still coming with heat. So honestly, uh, when did he actually come out? Because with him, I didn't really know too much about him until maybe 10, 11 years ago. I think the first time I knew of Odyssey was back in 2008. Um, I think he okay, probably okay. came out a couple years before because he was dropping mixtapes. But 2008 was when his debut album dropped. 2008. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So honestly, he's one of those who I feel like like he, he never broke through commercially, but anybody 
it's a case of either you never heard of him or you love him. Yeah, like, it's, too it's much in not in between. Like. And he does yeah. like everything. Like I said, the song "Never Not Getting Enough" is like heavy on the go go. Um, he raps about like racism and sexism, poverty, and like systematic forces that affect us as a people. But he also has instrumental albums that he's dropped, and he has songs like "Ready to Rock," yeah. "Slow Groove," and "Catching Vibes," which are all all very different. But it's it's so great. Yeah, for sure. A salute to Odyssey for sure. For for uh, my pick for this episode would be Easy hey. Mo B. Easy Mo B is a producer that I feel like is definitely one of the best producers for the '90s. I would say possibly of all time, but especially in the '90s. And he doesn't quite get the credit that I feel like he deserves. So with Easy Mo B, uh, anyone who knows my whole story is that I got into hip hop really around '92, '93, especially. And my dad was straight jazz. Uh, he, he was he was all the way. All the way jazz, I would say. So, so I didn't really hear too much hip hop at all, um, as far as growing up until like my friends and cousins started playing it. But with that, my dad bought Miles Davis' last CD. Miles Davis' last CD was called uh, Dubot, which is back in '92. Mm-hmm. So with that, uh, I remember him not liking it. So he was like, "Yeah, Miles got a new album, but I don't really care for it because it's too much hip hop." And I'm like, "What does that mean? Like, you know, I know hip hop is, but how is it too much?" But of course, he was older, so I listened to it. And I was like, this is fire. Because to me, it's like it had enough jazz influence, of course, but very hip-hop, um, the hip-hop beats, just with Miles playing the sax mm-hmm. on top. And Easy Moby produced that whole thing. And he had the title track called um, called Doobop. And he, he rapped on it, one verse. Miles played the horns. And they sampled that. Um, they sampled Summer Madness, I think, cool on it, game. too. But he, he had a yeah, cool in the game. But he had a little bit more bass line to it, a little bit more mm-hmm. drums. And I was like, oh, this is, this is banging. So... I was definitely rocking with Easy Mo Beats be from that point. Like, I know about him before even DJ Premier and a lot of those producers just because of that. But uh, looking back back into his career, he came from Brooklyn, of course, repping that BK, Dang. and he came in the late late nine, uh, late late '80s, I would say, producing for Kane. And he's produced for so many different artists that I can't even get into them all, rap and even some R&B as well. Of course, he produced for the LL types. He did Craig Mack flavoring your ear and, and get down. He did a heavy D, black coffee, no, no sugar, no cream. And the biggest thing that I would say he's known for is because he produced for Biggie and Tupac right. separately. And he was able to walk that line and stay cool with both of them. And with that, of course, he did some of Biggie's earliest songs. Like Biggie's, I think his breakthrough song really was Party and mm-hmm. Bullshit. And I was like, he produced that. He also did like the original version of Dare Wrong before, of course, the one that we heard as a single after uh, Biggie died. But... Then he ended up getting with, um, like, of course he did some stuff on Biggie's first album, like the Machine Gun Funk, which is just one of my favorite, favorite beats, you know, right there. But he got with Tupac when they were still cool, and he did the If I Die Tonight and Temptations. And Temptations, to me, was just the way he flipped that computer love on a straight East Coast. But I, I like to say that Easy Mo B had what I always call the New York undercover sound because <laughs> being, in, being in L.A., it was where whenever... Whenever I was, uh, whenever I would like watch New York Undercover, that's where I would hear those straight up, um, those hip hop type beats that I, I didn't really hear as much on LA yeah. radio. I, I would see it on Rap City and Yo MTV Raps, but whenever I heard those horn samples, that kind of Pete Rock ish type sound mm-hmm. too, it was where I associate that with New York Undercover. So I felt like I actually like Easy Mo's sound more than Pete Rock's personally, just because he had a, a little bit more bass lines to it, the beats would move a little bit more. So, with that, the fact that he walked that line and got back with Biggie after working with Pac 
And then he gave Biggie uh, going back to Cali. And it's, he made that. And that sounded like a straight West Coast produced beat. He took what Roger and Zap did and what every other West Coast uh, rapper producer did back in the early mid-90s using the Roger and Zap mm-hmm. sample. But he made it his own. Like He took it, he chopped it up, added some more sounds to it. And I always grew up thinking that that song was, uh, was produced by a West Coast producer until I actually looked, looked at the liner notes. And I'm like, oh, Easy Mo did that one too. And it's kind of funny just hearing the story with that because he was saying that uh, Biggie wanted to do a West Coast type song during the beef, so he he gave him that beat. And with that, um, he he didn't hear the song until his boy told him like, "Hey, so Biggie, the whole song he's talking about Cali," and he got scared like, "No, I didn't want to be like adding to the beef." And they was like, "No, it's it's a tribute. It's it's him trying to like make peace with the West Coast." And he heard it and said, "Oh, okay, okay, I rock with this. I rock with this." So. There's no one that Easy Easy Mo B was able to do that, and then in the 2000s, he was known for having those beat tapes and having those compilation albums mm-hmm. as well. So he's one of those types. If you just watch his interviews, he's just such a cool dude. Just the way he can explain the history of where he came from and what he did. He also made one of uh, my favorite beats for Busta with that "Everything Remains Raw." Like that beat, just the way it comes yep. in. I have to rewind <laughs> it sometimes because it just comes in so hard, and then the beat drops. Like I just love the, the build up on there. So. The Easy Mo B is definitely one of my favorite producers of all time. I yeah, would say. he. Uh, he yeah. I think as a hip hop producer, especially, like he crafted so much of that New York hip hop sound of the '90s. Like even today, listening to like Flavor in Your Ear, listening to uh, the Lost Boys, or like even Biggie's "I Love Lost the Dope." Like yeah. listening to how he took that Renee and Angela, and you know, had Biggie on it, and it just like perfect. Like he is one of those who's unsung, and then that Flavor in Your Ear remix. May I mean the original yeah, look, and the remix, look. like even the instrumental to the song. I'm just gonna say the instrumental is like one of the hardest hitting hip hop beats of the '90s. Seriously, one one thing that's crazy, I just knew that had to be a sample, and I've researched it so many times no. for years. That nope. wasn't a sample, so I don't know what that main horn. I guess it was maybe he 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 played his own horn and just filtered it to sound like a sample, but. I just knew that song had to be a sample, but nope. it's not. It's That's just, all original. It's him. That's so, the talent he had. Yeah. He was that dope. And even with I Love the Dough, I heard that he actually gave uh, Biggie and Diddy that beat, I think, for Ready to Die, if I'm not mistaken. He gave it to him early, and it I guess didn't it didn't it fit. There. But then once it came back around for Life, Life After Death, Diddy was like, hey, what's up with that uh, Renee Angela song you had? And it fit perfectly on there. It, it kind of bridged that, that Jiggy era right there. Man. So Yeah. It was perfect. So... Salute to Odyssey and along with the Easy Mo B for sure. So that is our rewind for the day. To get into that fast forward, uh, EB, who would you like to highlight for your fast forward? I got forward? one of your boys, one of the people uh, from the West Coast. Uh, he's oh. from L.A. Who is His that? His name is Otis Kane. Okay. I'm not sure if uh, our Kane, listeners yeah. are familiar with him, but he was born Anthony Vasquez. That's his real name. So he chose his stage name from Otis as an Otis Redding. And then Kane is like a play on the word King. Like, you know, five heartbeats, they'd be like, Eddie Kane, Kane. you know, so he's, he's Otis (laughs) Kane. Um, he is a multi, multi multi-instrumentalist. He is a producer, a singer and a songwriter who often he self-produces most of his work. Um, Brian McKnight, boys to men, like listening to people like him, you can hear their influence on Otis Kane. He says that his biggest influence is Stevie Wonder. So if, if you're a fan of, um, people who craft like songwriting and you know they they get into their feelings and they really tell stories he is the one his voice is uh 
it's kind of it's a little on the raspy side but he has an amazing falsetto that he uses sometimes he actually had his own studio out in la um uh stars enterprises s-t-r-z enterprises mm. and that like people like steven tyler the jonas brothers zendaya like they've all recorded in his studio um he his his style is more of uh i guess if you were to take stevie wonder and let pharrell or you know somebody produce stevie so it's like it's like a, a yeah. mixture a nice mixture of like that vintage sound but also like a you know, a, a very current sound. I don't want to say futuristic, but it's a very current sound. His latest album is called Purple Blue. That was his first album released this year. Um, but he also had a couple EPs that he released um, earlier this year and last year. So two EPs. Songs you should check out by him are Without You, Therapy, Run, and Lost. Like, those are really great songs. I think... Um, he, like I said, he loves Stevie Wonder, but he's also a really big fan of like ASAP Rocky. So, you, you know, he's definitely a, uh, like, what's it called? Gen Z, a child of what's going on right now. He, he is that. He's Gen, Gen Z. Z. Yeah. And I, I yeah. you know, as somebody a little bit older, not that much older, but I, I love it. I love everything about his sound. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Otis been doing this thing for a while, too. And I didn't know where he got his name from. I was thinking this maybe from like Temptations, Otis. Because yeah. I was thinking. Temptations yeah. and five heartbeats yeah, together, nah, maybe something like ready. that. But, but yeah, that's crazy to me. He's definitely been dope, dope doing this thing for a minute. So, yeah, salute to Otis. And it's always dope seeing these LA artists who have such a different sound, along with Giveon and a lot of other ones that are kind of bringing that LA ish sound back with their own right. twist to it. So, salute to him. So, my, my pick for this this episode will actually be I'm taking it down south. We're flipping it then. So, uh, Yeba is actually from. West Memphis, Arkansas, which is right next to Memphis, Tennessee. We, we, we talked about that a couple times. <laughs> but she grew up on a farm in West Memphis. So if you've been out there, Arkansas before, it, it can be, you know, kind of country. So it's in that type of area. And when you hear her music, you can kind of tell that she's the, she was the kid who grew up, yeah, in, in a, a farm-ish type of rural area who happened to love gospel and soul and R&B because – she has a voice that can kind of go wherever it needs to go. And I feel like whatever type of production that you you throw at her, she's able to catch it. So I know a lot of folks were introduced to her probably from that uh, that Chance performance uh, for that song, Same Drugs. Mm -hmm. And that's when a lot of folks heard of her. And I had heard her name before, but had never really like paid too much attention to her until recently. So I know she did just drop a brand new album last yep. week, actually. And it, the album is called Dawn. And... I remember hearing the album, and the album to me was solid good. I feel like, okay, it's good. She has some kind of folk influences, some country influences, but a, a lot of soul as well. But I saw her Tiny Desk performance. And her Tiny Desk performance, I'm like, oh. And it, it kind of leads back to something that we've been talking about before with a lot of artists. It's, it's where they make good music, but they have great performances. And I feel like once, she, once they figure out how to make her albums as great as her live performance... She's going to be a star because just the way her vocal inflections were, the way she was hitting those influences. I heard a little bit of Clark Sisters for a second. And I'm you like, where did that come from? I'm like, her. like it, me and you talk yeah. about her all the time. Like I, for whatever reason, yeah. prefer singers from the UK. A lot of times I heard her voice. I think the first yeah. time I, it was at a live show with um, PJ Morton and 
the the, uh, yeah, the way her right. her voice yeah. caught me, I originally thought she was from the UK. I thought she was from overseas, just because her voice was like yeah. that good to me. I was like, oh, she's not. She can't be from here. And now to hear that she <laughs> yeah. is from Arkansas, I'm like, this is blowing my mind. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like because she's able to, she had that influence, yeah. and that's something that a lot of a lot of singers just lack nowadays. But she she fused it with so many different uh, genres that I think that that. That's also her path to stardom, too, because she's a type who I'm not even sure how they'll categorize her. Because to me, I call it soul, but it's somebody might say it's a hybrid. It might be f- folk soul or something. It might be like like Bryson Tiller had trap soul. They <laughs> might merge something new for her because it's it's her own her own thing. So I know one of the standout songs on there was All I Ever Wanted. She had a couple songs on there that, that mm-hmm. caught my ear for sure. But she's made music with Tribe Called Quest and Sam Smith. So. She also, even with, with Drake, we talked about Drake earlier. She has her own interlude on there, the Yebba's yeah. Heartbreak. So the fact that, that Drake even gave her her own like spotlight song is crazy to me. And I didn't realize that until after I saw her live. And I, I had heard Drake's album and didn't even, I wasn't looking at the track list right, when right. I heard it. So I went back like, oh, that's her on there. So that is wild to me. So yeah, I think Yebba's going to make some waves soon. I'm hoping. I'm, I'm hoping she does because I'm telling you, like you said, like what what what'd you call it? Uh, like Country soul or... Folk soul, Folk soul like yeah. it's it's their voices like yeah. that where I can hear the soul in it. I can hear you know where she's from. Now that you tell me where she's from, I definitely hear that. Like, but I still thought yeah. she was from the UK, so it blew my mind to, to hear that we got that kind of talent right here. I'm I'm ready for more. Yeah, we need it. We we need that for sure. So, no salute to Yeba. A salute to Otis King Otis as King. well. So. We are gonna be moving into the drop segment. The drop segment. Uh, we have a special guest coming up for y'all. And then we're going to conclude with that beat match. So we're going to have a quick break. So once again, please go ahead and rate and review us on um, Spotify uh, podcast and Apple podcast. And also, if you have any suggestions for anything for rewind, fast forward or the drop, send us an email at behind the wheels at gmail.com. So at this time, go ahead and get you something to drink. We're going to have a good talk with a legendary writer and producer coming up next. Right, this is Behind the Wheels. Um, you with DJ Artistic and my co-host EB. So, for this episode, we have a very special guest. We have, uh, I would say, a legendary songwriter producer named Gordon Chambers in the building. So, Gordon, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. And so, if you, for anybody who's listening for their first time, uh, Behind the Wheels, we love, we love R and B, hip hop. But I think our our main, you know, the, the, what we grew up on the most was '90s R and B. And Gordon was a major, major factor in that era. So a lot of songs that you all have been singing since you were a kid or whatever age you were at the time came from Gordon. So I definitely want to get into a lot of that. So just to start off, um, one thing that we've always discussed is just about how R&B ballads, especially in the in the 90s, were so dominant. I feel like the 80s where ballads were kind of at their peak commercially. In a sense, I would say they, they started to peak commercially in the 80s. But in the 90s, I feel like... We had so many that we still love to this day, and they they evolved in the sense that a lot of them had kind of a gospel influence as well. But overall, yeah. in that period, what do you feel like? Why do you think that '90s um, 
was such a peak for those ballads and what made them so dominant? What, what made us love them so much in that era? What made them so well received? Well, first of all, um, thank you just for, for highlighting the 90s R&B sound. Um, it's, you know, they say if you live long enough, you get your flowers. So um, it's just, it's a beautiful experience to feel that that time of music um, that I broke in the music industry has been sort of, you know, considered high art or museum worthy or collectible or, you know, at this time, it really, really feels good. You know, we were just young, you know, it felt like we were just young kids, you know, that were just out of, you know, in our early 20s, just running around with each other with producers, just making music and, you know, and who knew what would happen, you know, but, but to, if you know, 20 years later, you know, the music has stood the test of time and, and, and people like yourselves have kept the spirit of it alive. So thank you. First things first, thank you. Second thing, second thing, I want to just give honor to and praise to the memory of Chucky Thompson, you know, um, who was who was a buddy and a friend to all of us, and very much a part of that '90s balladry sound. I mean, when Faith's, you know, album Faith's first solo album came out, and we heard those chords of "Soon as I Get Home," you know, it was like, as, when you talk about you know that a sound of '90s R&B, I had to give him honor and praise because. You said it. You said it. It was a lot of people who came out of church. You know, a lot of the music producers that I worked with um, were church were church boys. They were either hip hop boys or they were church boys, and sometimes they were both at the same time. Or sometimes they were people who were came from church and knew how to play and knew those chords and those harmonies and those structures. You know, that that collaborated with people with hip hop, like myself. I came um, from church, you know, um, and knew about stacking harmonies. That's why some of my songs have those big, lush harmonies. But, you know, at being in my early 20s, during the 90s, I was also very influenced, like you said, by 80s balladry. Um, Lionel Richie um, was a big influence. Of course, Stevie Wonder, you know, those, I mean, Stevie has so many tempos of music, but, you know, Stevie's ballads, you know, I, I don't want to bore you with it, you know, um, songs like um, I, I See Us in the Park, Love Knocks Me Off My Feet, you know, the Anita Baker ballads of the of the 80s, um, Giving You the Best That I've Got, Sweet Love, that whole album, you know, The Queen of the Quiet Storm, Phyllis Hyman, you know, some of those, the, the Living All Alone. I mean, but also the gospel music of the 80s had a lot to do with my sound as a songwriter in the 90s because the 80s is when you also heard for the first time, the Winans catalog. You know, you heard the Hawkins. The Hawkins were big, huge stars. So the chords of of the of the Hawkins sound and of the Winans sound and Vanessa Bell Armstrong sound, that Detroit gospel sound and the Oakland sound, the lushness and the commission and the jazziness of the chords and the thickness and the richness of the melody found its way into the sound of those, I think of many of us who were writing what you call those 90s R&B classics or ballads or whatever you want to call them. So that's where I kind of think that a bit of it comes from. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me because um, like you said, I feel like going up to the 90s, like black music had so many different genres. So we had, of course, 70s, we had everything from the soul, disco, the, the funk, and then of course gospel yep. was always there. Everything evolved so quick within the 80s because it was kind of building off of each other. It was where the right. gospel had the jazz influence. Then the R&B took more of the 
gospel with jazz influence. Then the nineties came, you had the hip hop influence. So I feel like even with that, yes. just listening to a lot of stuff now, I can tell that a lot of the nineties R and B, even the ballads had a hip hop influence. Sometimes the drums might have been mixed a certain way. Sometimes the way mm-hmm. that, the, that the bass was used, even the even the certain synthesizers. So do you think the hip hop had an influence at all with those ballads, just from your perspective, or? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you know, in my career. You know, people associate me, of course, with, you know, If You Love Me by Brownstone and Anita Baker's I Apologize. Those are the two songs I'm most well known for, you know, and Missing You from Set It Off, um, Brandy to Me at Glass Night and Shaka Khan. But, I mean, I came up with Diddy in the in the Puffy camps. You know, I worked on the first Face album. I worked on the first Usher album that, that Puffy produced. You know, I, I was, I collaborated, I, you know, wrote with KG a lot. I, you know, did a, I sang some vocals on the track for him called DJ Shout Out on the Paradise album, which was the first Grammy-winning album in hip-hop, actually, the, as an album. And, I, you know, I wrote Winky Steam with Latifah. Coke and Tone, Tone from Trackmasters is, is upstairs in my house right now, actually. My oh, wow. house, I do, what? you know, I do, like, space rentals, like, for my house, people come and rent, you know, to do video shoots. Wow. So he has a new artist, so he's literally upstairs with a new artist. So, I, you know, I, I knew Coke and Tone, Diddy... You know, all of these guys, this, this was the New York hip-hop, you know, producer sound. And they, I worked with all of them, you know, and they were friends of mine. And they loved me for Eddie F., Dave Hall, who really, yes. you know, launched, put me on the map. You know, they all knew me and respected me for what I, for who I am and what I did. This is one thing that I really love and about is that no one ever tried to make me be anything than what I was. They're like, okay, we, we give you the beat. You know, the quote that go goes, we got the beat, we got the beat. Yeah, yeah. And then you do you do what you do. You bring the, mm. the poetry, you bring the drama, you bring the lyricism, you bring the, the the chords, you bring that. Just do you. And we'll mix it, we'll put it with what we're doing and make it hot. So, and sometimes on certain projects, like Poker Tone, when we were doing the Allure album, they just said, Gordon, just get on the piano. Just get with the girls and get on the piano. We need a piano ballad from you. You know, they had already done what they felt was like the danceable part of the album. And they, like, they knew that I had that sensitivity. And so I w- sat down with one of the girls in the groups whose mother had passed mm-hmm. and did a song called Mama Said with her. So I was known to be that guy that could bring the beauty, that could bring the, 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 the harmony, and, and could bring the big vocals. They knew that I'm, they, you put me in a room, I'm going to stack them vocals, I'm going to yeah. stack them. And when, I stacked them and, and when I stacked them, I stacked them in honor of the Clark sisters, in honor of to take yeah. it back, in honor of LaBelle, you know, even seventies LaBelle, not Patty LaBelle, LaBelle, yeah. um, Nona Hendrix and Sarah Hendrix, you know, because I, you know, everybody knows Lady Marmalade, but I know LaBelle's entire catalog. So oh. when I would get in that room, you know, I, I use my gospel training, my gospel background to stack harmonies, layer the harmonies, and then use, but and use the sophistication of it. You know, the Clark sisters, you know, they wouldn't just have a three part harmony; they'd often have a four part harmony. So I brought all of that to the music that I made. But, I mean, to give you a, a story, like, I remember uh, my publishers by accident sent the song Valentine to Puffy. Like, we were asked, they were asking people to send songs for Carl Thomas. And, by ac- and I sent a whole bunch of other songs, and the publishing company by accident sent Valentine. Wow. And wow. then Puffy was calling me like, yo, gee, I need this song. <laughs> And I was like, I can't give you that one. I, did you hear all the other songs? Uh, that one I'm saving for myself, because that was a song I thought was so artsy and, like, you know, that 
I wanted to do that one for my own album, which didn't come much later. But I'm like, I can't give you that one. And he was like, yo, I need this song for Carl. And I knew Carl. Carl was a friend of mine. But I didn't know what kind of album that album Puffy was making with Carl Thomas. And he wanted to make like an artsy album with Carl, an album that was ballady. I had no idea. I just thought it was... It was Bad Boy was going to be like, I sent him what I thought would be the more of the Bad Boy sensibility. and then But then this is the magic words in the music industry. What do I got to do to get this song? What do they say? What do I got to do? It's a rap. <laughs> then it's yeah. like a different, it's kind of a different conversation. So yeah. long story short, I did give, I did do the song with Carl. And then I later on as my first solo CD did a, another version of it, a more jazzy acoustic version of it. And Carl mm-hmm. actually sang on it as a guest on my version, Ed Roy Hargrove, rest in peace, played the trumpet on another version. So right, I did right. actually get to record it on my solo album. But, you know, that was, that was, I brought that story up because that was to show you that there was this nexus and this conversation. Because if you listen to Valentine by Carl, it's, I mean, that's, that's very artsy. You know, sometimes sure. at night I cannot sleep. I think of you with reverie, but like an ancient melody, you're beautiful, but you're melancholy. I did not think nobody wanted a song with that opening, with that opening lyric, talking about melancholy and violence, <laughs> but you know, it, it but worked. he wanted the song, you know. So um, it's um, it was a, it was quite an interesting time of music coming together. I think it changed. It started to change, though. I I feel like towards the latter part of the '90s into the 2000s, it it got really political, where the artists wanted to insist on writing their own songs. And, you know, listen, I can't hate on the artists. You know, they were trying to build their catalog and build a brand and build their publishing up. But it became different instead of, like, you having a great song and you were, like, you know, you're a, sort of a considered as a craftsman. You know, you get your song to the record label or to the, or to, you know, or to the manager, and they're going to say, okay, this is a hit song, this is a, or a, this is a dope song. We need to, this for our artists. It became more about, like, we need to get you with this artist to co-write. And, you know, sometimes the artists were better writers than others, you know. Uh, and so the politics of it started to change. And then I do feel like the hip-hop infusion into R&B, I liked it in the 90s when it felt like it was a meeting in the middle. But towards, I would say towards the end of the 90s, towards into, into the early 2000s, other than Philly, other than Jill Scott and Music Soul Child, who yeah. kept it ballady, they kept it soulful, they kept it dreamy, it became more and more about, you know, the up-tempo or the the beat or the ratchet or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> it became more yeah. about that. And that started to sort of take over. And I feel like things started to change around 2000. But if it didn't start to change, then we wouldn't be having this conversation about 90s being the golden era of R&B ballads, so to speak, or R&B classics, so to speak. So you brought up, you brought up um, LaBelle, and it's a song that sticks out. They have a song... Um, it's a title track from their Chameleon album and just the way yeah. that you can distinctively hear Sarah's soprano and then you hear Nona and then you and you have Patty like forceful and then you listen to some of yeah. your work in the 90s and listening to like a Faith album or listening to like Missing You how everybody has a spot or even Brownstone the way the vocals were stacked I think mm-hmm. um, you you talk about it being dreamy and you know these um you said they would call you to come and play piano. Like I'm listening to Brownstone's yeah. half of you and I'm just hearing that they're just they're just going. It's like this this freedom to create. Is that something that you do intentionally? Or is that something that you think people then knew that they were doing? 
or is that just what it was? That's just the scene that we were in. It was just a scene. I mean, I think about it fondly, you know, because we were all friends. You mm-hmm. know, we all knew each other. You know, New York at that time was kind of an epicenter of 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 of, of the music industry. Right. It of course proliferated to Atlanta and L.A. But in New York, oh. New York was popping in the nineties. <laughs> right. It was. We were the kings. Yeah. You know, you could go around from studio to studio. I mean, if you got a session, got called for a session in one room at the Hit Factory or Chungking or, um, you know, Sony Studios, you would just be in the hallway and you're like, oh, I'm working on this with this person. Oh, well, after you're done, come, you know, to this room because Mariah's coming in or blah, blah, blah. You know, and you would just literally, you could just, you could go in for one quote unquote assignment or one networking yeah. or one hoping to bump into whatever. And the next thing you know, you've got like, you just down the hall and you bump into somebody or the engineer or a songwriter or a producer or a manager like, oh, come and check these tracks out because we're doing this. And then the next thing, you know, the work, if you, if you got it, you could stay in because it was all there. Things started to change. I mean, L.A. Reed, you know, opened up LaFace in Atlanta and he started a, a huge scene and, and you know, and, and, and people moved to L.A. So, you know, and then they're, they're starting to see, but in the New York there was a there was a time that I was and being New Yorker was benefited from and have very fond memories and we all knew each other so sometimes you know you'd be just listening to tracks sometimes a lot of songs at times I wrote songs to tracks but sometimes people wrote songs to tracks and they'd be like okay I could get on the piano and be like okay I like that but let's change this chord or let's add this mm-hmm. or be like okay well what you got you know do you have a song on the piano you know like when we did if you love me with Dave. You know, Nikki and them, they knew that I just played the piano because sometimes I played the piano just hanging out in the studio, just hanging out. And so Nikki called me directly. She's like, you know, I want to do a, a piano ballad with you. Can we just work on something to, to rap? You know, like, so it, I just kind of just, I don't know. We were friends. I mean, I was kind of known to be like a piano man. I remember Andre Harrell called me because Mary was doing some dates. She sang at the UN and she sang at a couple of political engagements. And he was like, yo. I need you to play for Mary, you know, um, to play Overjoyed for 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 Mary. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I had some of this stuff on videotape. So yeah, Mary would sing yeah. Overjoyed f- for these different functions sometimes. And because I knew Uptown and I knew Mary and I'd written songs with Mary and I just also knew Andre and we just all kind of it's like Andre knew that I could get on I could get in a room, put on a suit, <laughs> oh, get yeah. on a piano, sit with yeah. Mary, make sure that she's good, you know, that she sounds good. And looked apart and just kind of, you know, walk into a charity event or the UN. I could, I could do that. I was kind of just knew that I could call, could be called upon mm. to be classy in that way. Andre used mm. to call me, you know, he because you know I used to work for Essence, um, you know, while I was starting to break into the music industry as a songwriter. I was also working moonlighting, really, like working for Essence. So, yeah. you know, he, Andre would call me that Mr. Essence. He'd say, "Come, come, be fly with us. Come, be fly yeah. with." With with uh, with Mary, I need you to bring your essence over here, and you know he called me literally Mister Essence. You know, he's you know rest in peace, Andre Harrell, another great who sure. passed during the during the pandemic. That was a, that was a rough day when we lost him. Yeah. Do you think um I, we were talking about like sitting and being able to write a song with someone or going into a studio with an artist? Um, do you, or even a producer, I know you and, um, her Middleton have worked together several times and yes. you've done some of my, speaking of Mary, like one of my favorite Mary songs is one that you did with him. It's unreleased, but you did it together. And yes. it, it's something about 
that producer. Oh, y'all know your music. Y'all, we, wait a minute. Listen, y'all study. On, on, hey. We don't play y'all games on Behind the Wheels. But it's, it's, no, I see. it's like, do you think there's a, there, there's a disconnect with the writer's relationship with the producer? And that may have had something to do with the decline of balladry or even songwriting in general? I think that that's a really deep question. Mm, that's a deep one. Oh, ooh, that, that one took me back. I think that relationships blesses music, you know? And when you listen to the music of catalogs, you know, Ashford and Simpson were married for 50 years. Yeah. So when they sang Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, they were living that. that they were the real thing. You know, Holland Doge and Holland, they were like brothers. You know, they, they, you know Burt Bacharach and Hal David were like br- brothers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the music gets blessed by the people who make it, sometimes by the relationships of who you made it with, you know, and that blesses the sound of the music. I think that a lot of times in the, at that particular time when we were in the studios, it was experimental. It's like, okay, let's throw, let's, let's have Gordon come and do this with this person. A lot of times it was set up by the management. It was set up by the publisher. Sometimes you didn't really know that who was making the track. You mm. like, especially with Puffy, you'd be like, I got some tracks just coming here. Sometimes you didn't really know who the track was from. You know, you really didn't know. Okay. But when, when you made a relationship, because I wrote with all the hitmen, all bad boy producers. Right. I, I probably wrote with, you know, all different ones, Derek Angelini, all of them are different things. But Stevie A.J. and I became very good friends. Mm-hmm. So when Stevie was leaving out of Bad Boy to kind of start on his own thing, he said, Gordon, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go on a branch on my own. Do you want to do some stuff? I said, yes. Because Stevie J, at that time, what we're talking about, the epitome of church and rhythm all together, like Stevie was it mm-hmm. and could get on, that, get on the piano, get on the guitar, get on the drums and sing, like a classic church boy that just knows music and produce it and put it in i mean like we did for your love for tevin campbell together stevie and i um september by deborah cox which you Mm -hmm. know people every time september comes on you see all these posts in september happy september y'all i mean we made beautiful music together but steve and i were very good friends you know we didn't just hang out in the studio we would you know talk on the phone we were real friends so i think there was something to be said about the friendships that also blessed me, L.A. and Babyface, they, you know, yeah. they were friends. I mean, still, to this day, are still friends. You know, they kind of have gone to do different things. So I think a lot of it has to do, there's something very strongly to be shed, said about collaboration and relationships, you know. When I think about my favorite songs of all time, you know, it's people who, you know, it's, it's, it's Gamble and Huff. It's, I could go on and on. The combinations. You know, of, of, of the sound that I think blessed the music, the friendships. I just listened to this outstanding podcast that was an interview with Gamble and Huff, and they just talked about their friendship and how, mm-hmm. you know, their process and, you know, how they built their company. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful to hear them walk down memory lane about the music, but it was also just to hear the banter and how they would cut each other off and <laughs> dive with each other. I'm like, yeah. that's, how song, that's how songwriting sessions are. You know, you really become friends. You go to each other's houses, and you spend a lot of time, yeah. you know, together. You know, Barry Eastman and I have wrote, wrote I apologize, you know, we're, we're friends, you know, in life. You know, not just because we've made music together, but we care about each other as people, you know? I can see it. Speaking of that, uh, I apologize, like, 
as you said, your, your, your two most known songs probably are I Apologize and If You Love Me. Like, yeah. if you can just walk us through those songs, because one thing you did mention was that we all grew up on those 80s ballads and Anita Baker. How did it even feel to work with Anita after growing up listening to everything she made in the 80s and then giving her her biggest hit of the whole 90s? Like, how's that even I mean, feel? It was surreal. I mean, first of all, I have to give honor to Phyllis Hyman, you know, because mm-hmm. Phyllis was the first big star that I met mm-hmm. um, that introduced me to Barry Eastman, who introduced me to Anita Baker. When I talk about Anita, I have to give I have to tell the story and I have to give credit to how I got in that room. Right. And just, and put also, I love to just keep her, her memory alive, you know, because she is so unsung. So I got started working with Dave Hall and one of the first assignments with Dave Hall was to write with Phyllis. So I remember going into that room and then I'm like, oh my God, Phyllis Hyman is here. And Dave put me on the spot to like write and like, okay, I need you to like write something right now. And then Phyllis was like, you can write and you can really write fast. I said, I need to introduce you to some of the other producers I'm working with, one of whom was, one of which was Barry Eastman. And I knew all of that, you know, who Barry, Barry Eastman, for those listening, you know, wrote You Are My Lady for Freddie Jackson, huge hits, Love Zone for Billy Ocean, Mm -hmm. Love Zone for Jeffrey Osborne. I mean, Barry's catalog goes on and on and on and on and on and on. So he was like from the 80s into the 90s, he kind of like really hit He's like 10 years older than me, like probably 10 years before me. So by the time I met him, I knew Stephanie Mills. I knew exactly who he was and was very honored to meet him. And we started writing together, like just, you know, writing, just as writing songs, pitching songs, you know, just writing songs. Sometimes when you start writing with somebody, it's not immediately like, oh, I need you to write a song for such and such. You just start writing songs. You know, they have tracks, you have ideas, you just get with sense. And then sometimes the songs fit with things that come up across, you know, that produces desk or of that need but sometimes it's just songs so basically barry and i just started writing together just because we like writing songs together it was, it was easy it was fluid it was fluent and he was wrapping up the rhythm of love album for anita he was basically pretty much finished and he was had was going to be mastering the album that weekend actually and he said gordon anita's coming to town to master the album there's something that we started writing but we didn't finish it because by that time she had said, you know, I've got writer's block. I'm done with this album. But he said, but I remember this nugget of an idea. He said, do you think you can write something fast? I said, hell yeah. Or need a maker? Yes. Let's, let's do it. Because that's, <laughs> and yeah. he has a chord pattern and it had Anita saying, I apologize. Oh, yeah, yeah. And she was just kind of humming along. And it, it had the title. It was her title. It was her concept. Mm-hmm. And it had like a little bit of a chord structure. And Barry made a track out of it and, and gave that thing to me. And I said, I put that. I just started. God started writing. Mm-hmm. Really. God threw me. And it came to me very quickly. And I had to go to his house after work because I was still working at Essence. I had to go to Essence, say, oh, I'm not feeling well. Me, a big old black man, not feeling well in the office. So I had some invisible imaginary cramps or whatever, you know. I had to make up something. Had to. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, went to, you know, rushed up to Barry's studio because he lives in Tarry, still lives in Tarrytown. So I had to drive up from Midtown to Tarrytown to get there, you know, and lay that vocal down quickly. I wrote the song the night before, called him in the middle of the night, woke him up, sang it onto him on the phone. I said, I think I got it. He said, oh, that's good, but you're going to have to get that to me. We're going to have to knock that out. So I wrote in, you know, quickly, 
laid the vocals down, got to him, like, laid it down real quick. That's why you hear all my background vocals. Mm-hmm. And then he had to do a quick mix of it, and he Federal Express, I mean, he had to drive to FedEx. Because this was days. way before MP3. Before MP3s. Yeah. Yeah. Drove, drove a wow. CD or maybe a cassette. I don't remember what it was. To go <laughs> to FedEx to take it to her house because he said, I want her to get this, listen to this, because she's coming to town to master it. She's kind of like, she'll have nothing to do but to check it out. And she likes it. He knew the timing. And sure enough, she really liked it. So when she got to Hit Factory, rest in peace, Hit Factory, one of the greatest studios, yeah. you know, last, um, I remember the last song I did there um, was Someone Watching Over Me for um, Yolanda Adams, mm-hmm. which is actually... Of all the songs I've written for people, there are certain songs that are more famous than others, but that one is one of my favorites. Of my that that is one of personally of my favorites because that song, first of all, Yolanda is somebody who, long before I met her or or, or worked with her, there was a time I was in in a bout of depression in my twenties, and I would listen to Yolanda, ongoingly every day. I would listen to her music just as a listener, so. This was way before I met her and way before I worked with her. So when I had a chance to write with her, it meant something to me because her voice literally helped me, pulled me out of a, a time when I, my wow. spirit was really down. You know, so that song to this day, when I listen to it, that one really gives me chills because of, of, of who of her spirit has meant to my spirit in my life. But that was one of the last songs I, I recorded at Hit Factory before it passed. Rest in peace to Hit Factory. Rest, Rest, in, peace. Peace Rest in peace to all, all the great, old New York is gone. Great <laughs> studios. It's like as I'm ta- as I'm talking to y'all, yeah. I'm, I'm not just thinking about the people, the great some of the great people who have who've passed. Mm-hmm. I got to give honor to those, but also the studios and that whole era. Um, but you know, Barry, Barry Hit Factory had mastering as well as recording. So Anita came to town to master her album which Barry knew that Anita being a perfectionist, it was not going to get done in one day. It was going to have to be probably a two-day project. So Barry very cleverly still had some studio time left over from, you know, her album and had a new one of the engineers. He said, well, Anita, you know, let's take a break from the magic. Let them do what they're doing. Why don't we go upstairs and just, why don't you lay just a rough vocal down since it's fresh in your mind of the I apologize idea. He had a lyric sheet. And she said, okay, why not? Because she was, you know, not bored, but just like, mastering takes some time. And blah, blah. Yeah. So they went upstairs, she sang the song, and when she left, he told the engineer to mix it. He said, mix it now. Oh, oh. So he was just taking it, he was a and r basically. Right. So the next day when they come into, you know, come into mastering number two, he said, I need to take a listen to this. And he said, that I have the engineer mix, mix the record. He said, and she was like, well, that was a, a rough vocal. He said, mm-mm, that's a vocal, and this is a hit song. So the song, wow. it was not planned to have been on the album. It really wasn't planned to be on the album at all. So the album, it just got like put on the album during mastering, and when the record company heard it, when they turned it in that, that Monday, and they heard the master, they loved it. They are like, this is a hit. And they rushed it to radio, and it, you know, it, it became a hit song and a Grammy-winning song. So that was a pivotal year. It's one of those songs to me, like it is certain songs that stick out. And I remember, I guess it was Video Soul or one of those shows back in the 90s. I remember for some reason, every single episode for like three months, they ended with that song. I remember that for some really? reason. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yep. So wow. It just sticks out I didn't, memory I, didn't, like that. I didn't remember that. Yeah. yeah. So the same thing for uh, If You Love Me. One thing about If You Love Me is that a lot of songs, I love hearing the acapellas too, because as a DJ, 
it, for one, it's fun yeah. to, to blend it with certain stuff, but like I would say some of my favorite songs as far as acapellas are definitely Marvin Gaye, I Want You. I feel like those acapellas, just his Ooh. layering is so mm-hmm. vicious on there. I just, yeah. My first song on my first solo album is Can I Touch You There, which was inspired okay. by I Want You. Oh, so when I okay. do when I do touch you there in my shows, I start with I Want You. It's funny that you should say that. It makes a lot of sense because I, I can hear that influence. So the same thing with If You Love uh-huh. Me. Um, my first time hearing the acapella was really because I'm sure you know about Tory Lanez. Uh, he, he remade it and had yeah. to say it. So I was like, let me just play around and put the brownstone acapella on top of his beat. And just hearing that acapella, I was like, this acapella by itself is better nice. than a lot of songs. So just like, how, yeah. how did that whole process go as far as creating that song? That is a trip. Um, so Dave and I wrote that song um, and I did the demo of it, and I sang it much quieter, you know, because mm. y'all have heard my solo albums. I am yes. like a crooner. I have like yeah. a breathy type, you know, of timbre, breathy type voice. So I sang it my way, you know. I sang it as I sing it. So Dave and I did the demo of it, and 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 the beat was in the verses. Dave sent the song to them. I think he was pitching it to Jade, and they turned it down. Oh, but wow. we did a different wow. song. Yeah, I believe he was pitching it to Jade, but they turned it down. Mm-hmm. But we did another That's song crazy. for them called "If the Mood Is Right." Right. But I, um, I think they, I think they, I think they turned it down. So, but then he sent it to Brownstone. But then they did their own demo of it, and then they added the oh, oh. They wrote that and added that. Mm-hmm. So then they also changed the words. Nikki changed the words because uh, when I wrote it, it was "If you love me, show it." It was show it, do it, say it, prove it. Because the first in the, you know, it said actions speak louder than words. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was like, show it. And so when Nikki changed the words and I heard Dave play me Nikki's version, I felt the way kind of like, well, why did she change the words? She's changing the meaning. And I was like, and the OI, OI, does that really go with the message, message? Does it go with the message of the rest of the song? And then when I heard it, they were like, they stacked their vocals so big, it almost like sounded like they were like almost screaming. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, so it was so wow. different. Wow. And so when we went to the studio, I talked to Nick. I'm like, well, Nikki, you know, let's have a conversation because <laughs> blah, blah, wow. blah. And then she said, she, and she said, Gordon, she said, women need men to say it. I was thinking that. I was honestly thinking that when you said it. We need the man. You know, and this is true. I remember growing up, my father and my mother, I mean, you know, they're both Jamaican, they're both Sagittarius. You know, they would have some major arguments. (laughs) And sometimes I thought my father was just mean. I'm like, Dad, you're just so mean. And Daddy knew he'd be mean. And so the next day, he would be like telling me and my brother, come, help me pick out a ring for your mother. (laughs) Or do you think your mother would like this fur coat? And in my mind, I'm like, no, mommy just wants you to say you're sorry. But he would be into like showing it with a big gesture, you know, because right. that's what men do. We like to show it. So Nikki was like, well, we as women, we need the man to say it. So she, she, you know, Nikki's a strong woman and she felt she held her ground. And I'm like, you know what? Let's go with it. And when we went in the, in the studio, I was trying like they had big voices. I was actually trying to, to calm it down. But they, that's how they sing. And they stacked their vocals, they sang all on the mic together and stacked their vocals three times. So it had this huge sound. But the way Dave mixed it, he knew how to mix it and pull it into the beat so that it was like, it popped out, but it still was like, it tucked, it's like it locked. So 
So Dave knew, and then, but this is the interesting thing about that session, is that when we were recording the verse, the first verse, Dave decided to pull the beat out. I was going to ask about that next. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask. Yes. Yeah. And he had Nikki singing, and I don't think we had a click track, or the click track wasn't really working or wasn't loud. So she was singing, and she was singing the first verse without the beat. And her timing, it was like, she sounded great, but she couldn't get the timing to lock, and she couldn't really hear the click track. And I was like, Dave, why are you dropping the beat? Let's put the beat back in. This is how it was written like that. This is how she practiced it. Like, this is taking forever. Blah, blah, blah. And Dave shut me down. I was like, yo, let me produce. You write. You make sure they on key. Let me produce. Because people need to hear these words. That's exactly what he said. He said, people, he said, people need to hear these words. And Dave had a vision. That innocence or that vulnerability, really, right. is a better word. That's what it is. Of Nikki and Maxi singing those lyrics, unplugged almost like that, just over that chord. He had he had a vision that it was special. I I I thought it was insane and crazy. I really did. And then you know, but I tell you one thing: when that record played on the radio. <laughs> It's it still playing on the like radio. <laughs> it is. I heard it Saturday. WHR, yeah. I was in DC and they played it. Yeah. But I I remember just how it sounded on the radio. First of all, I just was shocked. It's the first song I ever heard of mine on the radio. Oh, but okay. I was just okay. shocked that, that it was on the radio. You know, after years of doing music in school and high school and college, you know, just trying to get heard, trying to get on that. Like, I finally had a song on the radio. But I remember you know, how it sounded on the radio. And it just took you by, it just took you to another place. It was like, you know, when, when Dorothy just wakes up in Oz, to this day when that record, it's so haunting, the chord pattern, the chord, the chord change that Dave came up with. And, you know, I don't want to rain on the parade. It's like, who is it, who is talking about a parade, you know, and the rain, you know? It, it's like, you know, remember that Donna Summer song, but, you know, I remember, like, as a kid, my father loved Donna Summer, and I remember hearing, like, that song, MacArthur, MacArthur Park, Park, and yes. that lyric. Someone, someone brought the cake out in the, rain. in the rain. I don't think that I could, I don't think that I could take it, because it took, took so, so long to bake it, to bake it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll never have wow. that recipe again. And I remember oh. as a child hearing uh-huh. Remember Me, Ashford and Simpson by Dinah Ross. Uh-huh. Remember Me. Like a sunny day that you once had along the way, didn't I inspire you a little higher? Then remember me as a big balloon at a carnival Mm. that ended too soon. (laughs) Remember me like a song you sing. Remember me as a good thing. And so the way that lyrics jumped out at me as a child, I was a nerdy kid. I wasn't good in sports. I wasn't cool. I was nerdy. I got skipped second grade. I thought everybody hated me. You know, the black kids, black kids. So, but you know, I found solace and grounding at the piano. I could go to the piano. I could go in my father's basement and play records because we come from a music loving family. Daddy had Miles Davis and Sarah Vaughan and mm-hmm. Richard Macon, Peter Tosh and Sister the Maytals and the Staple Singers and the Temptations. We had everything. And then on the radio in the seventies, you heard. You know, a lot of light FM. So we, I remember Help Me by Joni Mitchell being on the radio and mm. 
Diamond and Gar- my father loves Diamond and Garfunkel, mm. Den- John Denver, you know, uh, just sound. Mm-hmm. Don't it make my black, black, brown eyes blue by Crystal Gill. There's certain songs that just remind me of my childhood that etched something in my soul and the sound of these words and lyrics and hearing them just either on my father's eight track, you know, or, or hearing them, my mother had a little transistor radio that she used to iron clothes with and the songs that jumped out and the the vibration of how those songs touched me. And when I heard If You Love Me on the radio, it just, it gave me chills. And when I heard Say It on the radio for the first time. Really? You know, really? it just yeah. was like, you know, it's like people kept calling me to tell me that Say It was out and I had not heard it. And my house, the house I had, I had a major fire in 2016. Mm-hmm. And the first time I ever heard Say It was the day after the fire. When my family came to pick me up, and I was deeply depressed, mm-hmm. very depressed, and in shock. When your house burns down, you don't know what you're going to do with your entire life. Right. And my nephew said, and it came on the radio. My nephew said, Uncle Gordon, I told you your song was going to, was on the radio. That say it was playing on the radio. And also when I heard it, I was like, it, I heard it again with that chord change, the same chord change that haunted me of when I when Dave played the track, but it was done with this hip hop, you know, swaggy. Late two thousand style, I was like, yeah. Yeah. I was like, wow, the you know the power of that was a that was a blessing that that song you know became a hit at that time. It was a real blessing in my life at that time when I needed a blessing, you know. For sure, for sure. So you know, those are some. Of, yeah, I have a random question about that because one thing I'm always discussing about uh, when it comes to playing in the clubs is that a lot of R and B songs from the nineties. That didn't necessarily get club play at the time, get club play now because people who are in their 30s, early 40s, they grew up hearing these mm-hmm. songs. So, was that song played in the club in the 90s? Was it actually in clubs or was it just more of a radio song? So, if you love me, did it play in the clubs? You know, I don't know because I wasn't at the clubs. Okay. okay. I wasn't, I wasn't, I was too, I was in the studios and I was yeah. at work. <laughs> you know, I wasn't a club. I get, it. I get that. I can't, I can't, I can't. Say that I personally remember. I don't. I. It may well have been. It probably was, but I don't have memories of it like that. Okay. I just have memories of it being on the radio because it was the number one R and B. It was the number one R and B. It was the number one R and B airplay song of 1994. It was number one in R and play of everything on R and B. That was a major that year. Was a great year for, that was a great <laughs> yeah, year of 1994. Yeah. So it was number one. Radio airplay number one of the whole year. So I remember it being on the radio. I also remember it pl- singing. People sing it at the open mics. Mm-hmm. That I mean, still to this day at open mics, you go there and people sing it. I remember that. I remember going to open mics and then people would be just you know singing to people like, oh, the writer of it is right here. You know, uh, yeah, um, yeah. you know. I, so I don't know. You know, I, I, I can't say that it didn't, but I don't. But I have different memories of. Of it, I have different memories of it. Okay, I was just curious yeah. because, because like I was saying, certain songs like "Can We Talk" I heard didn't get club play. I heard, I remember the time Michael didn't, but whenever I play "If You Love Me Now," it's one of those songs that not only do all the girls sing, it's where I have to actually play the whole song. Like, like if I cut it too early, people are <laughs> mad. They, they want to hear that whole, like you said, "Oh I, Oh I," like that whole song. I can play that yeah. whole four and a half minutes, and they love it. So, so no, so somebody. I mean, it's interesting because in the pandemic, it's been all these different "if you love me" memes. Some of them have been hilarious oh, and wow. X-rated, actually. <laughs> you know, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, yeah. But um, but there was a meme like some guy was 
playing it, and he was like, you know, he said, it's all about that beat drop. Like, like he's like, listen, and when the beat drop, he's like, you know, he just starts to like, <laughs> you know, he starts right. It's like, and it went viral just seeing him enjoy the beat drop, the when the beat drops in of it. It's interesting. Like, I think of If You Love Me, I don't think of it as a club banger. I think of it as a very emotional ballad with a beat, you know, but some sure. people do think of it as a as a club banger, you know. There were certain emotions I was trying to, I as a writer was trying to express and, you know, deal with that came from a certain place deep in my heart that I was trying to get out. That That's why to me it feels more like a ballad. Like when I sing it live, I slow it down, you know, mm. actually. So I, you right. know, but, but when that beat drops, by the time that chorus, people are ready to party. I mean. That's the thing. Yeah. It's funny because I didn't used to sing it in my shows, but after Tori did it again, I put it back in the show. I put it back in the set and I closed with it. You know, I, I closed the show when I perform. I closed with it because it just it just it makes people happy. It, it makes people very joyful. I love to see men enjoying it too. You know, men love like, it. Men love it. You know, love it. Yeah. It's like yeah. it became one of the, one of those things when they say, you know, it hit both genders and. And white people love it. Did you see that? I did that see that. And squat, I did see that. Fire and yes. singing it. Yes. I saw it. I saw it. No comment, but I you saw know. it. I saw it. <laughs> I loved it. They loved you know, it. because it was authentic. They it were was, showing their love for R&B. I loved it. Yep. I was, I, I understand. you know, I got, I was, you know, when people had whatever they had to say, I'm like, listen, yeah. people are enjoying, listen, no, what would I sound point. like? Yeah. What would I sound like if I decided to sing in Japanese? Mm. Mm. You're right about that. What would I do? Which I actually have done. I've actually had. I've actually done recording sessions in Jackson where I had to learn it phonetically. But how fly would I be if I? You know what I mean? Really? Yeah, I get that. I get yeah. that. For sure. But I would if I was to if I were to do that. I would be doing it because I'm showing my love of my love of, of the song. culture. Yeah. I'm not in. I'm not in comp- competition of those who have created the culture. Mm-hmm. I'm showing my appreciation of the culture. So I think those who who viewed it and you know and 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 hated on it didn't get it i got it mm. you know exactly. Exactly. yeah okay no and you know if you love me touch me because it's been recorded in spanish it's been recorded in edm it was in the the film um what stays in vegas there was this whole this british group did it in, as this whole edm mm. version i mean and then ed shearing did a whole cover of, of Say It, actually Say It, mm-hmm. which went totally viral. I mean, it's been recorded, I mean, at least 10, 11 t- times, and this Australian, one of the Australian idols sang it. I mean, it's been, it's, it became, you know, it's special to me, but it's also like, I loved the 60s and 70s because you'd have, like, I love John Legend's Imagine. That's one of my favorite songs of all time. But then I love Randy Crawford. Randy Crawford. Hers is my favorite. Saying that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, I love Aretha. I love Simon and Garfunkel as writers. I love the original of Like a Bridge of Trouble. But then Aretha, when she said, don't trouble the waters, leave it alone, leave it alone. Why don't you let it be? Yeah. So I love that there was this conversation through covers of soul music and pop music, you know, kind of talking to each other, you know, collaborating, not necessarily being in the same room at the same time, but collaborating through covering each other. And so 
those other interpretations of, of if you love me have really touched my spirit really deeply. I'm very grateful. Oh, one of the questions we that was on the call sheet was about my favorite bridge of all time. So my favorite bridge of all time is Shoop, by, written by Babyface and sung by my friend, the great Whitney Houston. Hearts are often broken when there are words unspoken. In your soul, there's answers to your prayers. But if you're looking for that place you know, that familiar face somewhere to go, take a look inside yourself, you're halfway there. Sometimes you laugh. Sometimes you cry. Life never tells you when or why. But when you've got friends, friends, that one thing we learned from the pandemic, when you've got friends who wish you well, you'll find a point when you'll exhale. Shoot. That bridge into that final verse is ministry, ear candy. I, I love that so much. It gives me chills. You know, what that, whenever I hear it, it just uplifts me so very much. Mm -hmm. You know, just how much it says about love, about life in so short of a time. So I just want to give a, a shout out. We cannot close out the talking about 90s R&B without giving all honor, all of it, to Babyface, who I've also had the honor of working with. He's the king. So we all were just princes to his kingship. So I, I just have to get that in. Oh, for sure, for sure. You got to salute to that. So no, I appreciate you. That, that's what it is. Salute Babyface and, and uh, rest in peace to Whitney as well. So we appreciate that. So and thank you a whole lot for coming through. Thank you and, so and much. Having so much knowledge and insight on that. So for everybody who is listening, once again, this is Gordon Chambers. Where can they find you at on social media? Uh, what's your Instagram? Gordon Chambers, G-O-R-D-O-N Chambers. And that's the that's my Facebook. And that's my, you know, that's Gordon, just Gordon Chambers. And I give vocal lessons. So if anybody wants a vocal lesson, wow. um, you know, whether you're a professional or it's a hobby, you know, all ages, you know, contact me, um, DM me at Gordon Chambers on Instagram or um, Gordon at GordonChambers.com is my, also my email. So, you know, I'm down because I love to sing and I love to help people to just express themselves with the power and the love and the joy of music. And I love music lovers like yourselves. You know, I love to connect with you guys. And thank you for who you are and what you do and for keeping people like me feel like a king. I appreciate yeah, we have that. That's, that's our goal. That's our goal right here. So we appreciate you. So, yep. So to everybody who's listening, this is this is The Drop with Gordon Chambers. So next up, we have one of your favorite segments. We have that beat match coming up. We're going to debate two hip-hop legends for y'all. So uh, each of us have three minutes to uh, explain our case for, you know, our side of the battle. So we each episode, we, we, we debate everything from albums to artists to producers to decades, songs, whatever it may be. So for this episode, let's see what we're going to do. So um, we've been talking about versus matchups a lot. We've been trying to figure out things. And someone mentioned who at Will Smith battle a couple days ago. And with that, I was like, I'm not sure who really fits with Will Smith. I'm like, possibly LL, but they both act and rap. It would be dope if they had a had something maybe showing their movie clips and you know their 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 rap songs. But I said, you know what, with LL, who could go against LL? And I was thinking about somebody who had longevity, somebody who had similar eras, even if they're totally mm -hmm. different. And I was wondering about LL Cool J and Buster Rhymes, totally different artists, but both New York. Both have been around forever. Both have hits in three separate decades, I would say. Point, yeah. And with that, yeah, and with that, it was like, I was kind of stuck. Like, who would I even go with? And I asked EB, and I'm going to ask him right now. Like, who who do you think would come out 
on top in the battle between Buster. This and is LL. Brooklyn versus Queens, and I'm BK oh, all day, so I gotta go with Buster. Love LL, but I gotta yeah. go with Buster. Yeah, I get it. And with me, initially I was thinking Buster, but the more I thought about it, I said I think LL has a better case. Honestly, that's just, that's just the way I feel. So. What we're gonna do is debate this for this beat match. We're gonna have our producers, Melissa and the lady, give us, you know, they're gonna give us their take at the end and tell us, you know, who comes out as the victor. So EB is my co-host. I will let you go ahead and explain your case for Mr. Buster Rhymes. Let's okay, see. Okay, so Buster is one of those, um, yeah, I'd say he he's like the Beyonce of rap. Um, meaning that, you know, he started with leaders of the new school, um, L O N S. Um, and he gained so much popularity while in the group that the group had to break up just because Busta Star was rising so quickly. Um, and the reason why is because he does this unique thing in hip hop where he brings his culture to the music. So, I mean, he's not afraid to speak in Patois or use Jamaican slang. Both of his parents are Jamaican. Um, and his flow is one of the most distinctive and he's able to switch it up so many times. Um, he was stamped actually by Chuck D and Public Enemy, who gave him the name Buster Rhymes. And to have a great like that stamp you with their seal of approval, you know, it was like passing the torch, I, I, I feel. Um, even early in his career, before he even dropped an album, he was making waves. I mean, he was working with Biggie, he was working with uh, Big Daddy Kane, working with Brand Nubian, um, a tribe called Quest. And then uh, he did the interludes on Mary J. Blige's first album, What's the 411, just him by himself. And he also did the same thing on TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool. So it was like the hip-hop world had embraced him and he was rising so quick. But also it was something about the merger of hip-hop and R&B during this time that he just had to be included just because before his album even came out. So this is not, you know, he, he released an album and all of a sudden, you know, he's popping on everybody's stuff no this is like the hype that people get uh somebody current like uh remember when uh nikki was on everybody's mixtape on everybody's remix before we even got her first yeah. album i think he did a great job or his team did a great job with you know building him up and placing him um in the right places at the right time and then we also got to see how unique he was and how much he stood out because like I said, his crew, everybody didn't stand out. They had to break up simply because his popularity was rising so quickly. Um, when I think about just not only his flow, but also um, his vocal technique, like the ways in which he can contort his vocals and use these different voices. It's almost like characters, but they're not characters. It's just Buster. I think that speaks to his creativity as an artist. It's not all the same flow. It's not... Um, all the same personalities, so to speak, because I think a lot of people have that where Buster doesn't. I think he is one of, if not the greatest, uh, to debut in the 90s to still see this type of longevity that he's seen without being, you know, a mega superstar or a huge commercial success. Like Buster was everywhere in the 90s. He was everywhere in the 2000s and 2010s. And I really believe like he's going to be around for the 2020s. There it is. There it is. So, no, with Busta, I definitely salute to Busta. He, one thing I do say about Busta is that he's one of the only artists to have like the verse of the year spread out like th throughout decades. But, but 
I see it this way. I feel like Busta is definitely a great, great artist when it comes to, to his features, just having standout verses, guest verses. And his albums are definitely, he has some good albums. LL is at just a different level to me. I feel like LL is one of those. The first thing about LL that I always say is that there is not really any artist who came out in the mid-80s, not even late, late 80s, because we know hip-hop changed every two years in the 80s. Nobody else came out in 85, 86 who still had major hits even in the early 2000s, but LL had them in the late 2000s as well. We're giving him a good, that's 25 years spread out with LL. So it's like, he came out the out the gate. He had songs like, like I'm Bad and Rock the Bells. And Rock the Bells, you hear that at hip-hop, hip-hop conventions, um, festivals, whatever it is. DJs still love LL Cool J is hard, you know, just scratching that one part. And that was like 85 he made that. Like nobody else in 85 can really say they're still, you know, who are, were at that level, I would say. Like you had DMC, DMC making some great music as well, but LL stuff still sounds modern in a sense. Like even though he was yelling, which came from that DMC type style, like he was able to tone it down whenever he needed to. So right after that, he had the songs like I Need Love. I Need Love, Hate It or Love It is one of those types of songs that it was very, very um, transitional. It's one of those songs that really showed that hip-hop could make ballads. It's, it's the first hip-hop ballad, and it influenced so many artists. I feel like Drake's whole template came from LL Cool J, because with LL, it's where he was that ladies' man that, I mean, LL stands for ladies' love, you know, but at the same time, he was a battle rapper, so he he knocked off uh, Cool Mo D, you know. I, I apologize to Mr. Cool Mo D for that, but LL came with that heat for him, he also wasn't scared to go at it with people like Cannabis. And we know Cannabis was a, a high-level lyricist. And whether or not, I mean, I admit, Cannabis probably had the better diss song, but LL not only held his own, but career-wise, he still kept going from that moment. It wasn't like Cannabis affected LL's career in any sense. And I mean, people people forget DMX album went number one that first week, but a lot of that is because LL's response to Cannabis was attached to it with that compilation album. So... Just looking at LL, he had so many different phases, and he always stayed around, even though people didn't care for Walking with a Panther when it came out, and back then, all it took was one album to knock you out. He kept, kept, kept coming back. So even after he had the whole Rock the Bells, I'm Bad, I Need Love, I mean, he said, don't call it a comeback. When he had Mama Said, Knock You Out. And he came back so strong with the, the big old butt-type songs. He'll have a, a Rampage verse. He killed that Rampage verse, Uncle L, like, just the way he dropped that, so... No, I, I feel you right now. You you made a, you made actually some really good points because you know for an, a rapper who debuted in um, the mid '80s, not even the late '80s, to have that type of longevity as you know on the changing landscape of music, like that's something that um, I don't think we've been able to see from Busta yet. But despite all that, like you talk about like LL being like the first um, hip hop balladeer and giving us like I need love. I mean, yeah, but then. You know, Busta's work with Janet on What's It Gonna Be, and then he's also worked with Mariah on Give It To Me or Give It To You. Um, like, that that speaks to um, his power that, yeah, I, you know, I can be rough, but I can also be a balladeer. You know, I can work with, you know, these beautiful songstresses and make these, uh, these songs that are getting played in the 2000s now. And this is not what I originally set out to do. This is not what I was doing. And you can go back to like Busta when he came out with the woo-ha. And then then we started getting the put your hands where my eyes can see and to fire it up. And then he gave us a whole squad. He gave us the flip mode squad. So not only was he, you know, the man and doing what he could do, but he gave us 
a whole squad. Without him, we don't get like Rod Digger. So I think his influence on um, coming from a crew and being able to create another crew to go on and release an album, I think that's something that LL hasn't given us, and I don't think LL could give us that. Um, no disrespect to LL, but I just don't think he can do that just because that's not who he is as a rapper. That's not, you know, what he does. Um, Busta, like you talked about his um, having verses of the year. Yeah, like that scenario remix with uh, Tribe, even we hear the the influence today with Nicki Minaj with the rah rah like a dungeon dragon like that's 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 still here even when he worked back with um Chris Brown on the look at me now like there are people out there right now still practicing to try to see if they can do Buster's verse without tripping over their words or running out of breath like that something there's something to be said about that no for sure and I mean even though he wasn't saying nothing on that verse I mean it sounded amazing I'm gonna say it but I feel like LL when you talk about rings it's like Buster has more range within like his styles. I feel like LL has more range within the songs he could do because yeah, Buster had a couple of those ballads, but I mean LL had so many. I mean he had the "This Is for the Lover and You" remix with Babyface. He had the the Brandy uh, sitting up in my room remix. He had the Carl Thomas "She Is" and LSG "Curious." All these types of songs, but he also had like the those hardcore type songs. He had. If you heard a song like uh, Flavoring Your Ear Remix, which, which we discussed earlier, and then you have a track, I mean, of course, we mentioned The Rampage, but 4321, I mean, that song's one of the grimiest, but banging his songs of that late 90s when it came to hip-hop. I mean, he, not only did he, did he hold his own, he came back to Cannabis on the song, which is one of my favorite things ever to have two artists on the same song. He said, I'm going to put you on my album on the song just to let you know who I am. That's a bold move, like, even if Cannabis is new. And yeah, he, he probably took that line wrong, what Cannabis said initially. Either way, he said, look, I, I am your, your daddy. Like, respect me. I, I, I'm letting you know who I am. And with that, he had so many, just such a variety of songs. I mean, Mr. Smith album gave you uh, Doing It, which is more of a sexy type track with a Hey Lover, which is him being like introspective and just being all the way vulnerable. He gave, he gave you a lounging. Lounging was just that radio hit you always going to hear. On the whole flip side, he gave you I Shot You on there. So he still give you that grimy New York type hip hop on the same type of album. And he had, he was always good for that. He gave you songs like The Back Seat, which you wouldn't have Monica just one of them days without Back Seat. He gave you those type tracks. Then he gave you, on you know, the um, the Phenomenon album. He had songs like The Father, which was one of those songs, along with the Will Smith having the um, Just the Two of Us, like a song about his dad. Like hearing that as a hip hop single is a huge thing, especially in the 90s era. He was still making those those boom bap tracks like Ill Bomb. And then he came back, when I'm telling you, he had 80s and 90s hits. 2000s, he gave you some some classic classics. All right. Uh, talk about classics. Buster gave us the Touch It. And then he gave us the Touch It remix with Mary, Rod Digger, Papoose. D, like, everybody's in the video. And they, yeah, like, they <laughs> was dedicating the video uh, to the memory of uh, his bodyguard. I love that he was... Yeah. Um, that he, you know, took this song that had nothing to do with that, but he was able to just dedicate it to someone who lost their life, unfortunately, um, in a violent way. Um, he gave us Respect My Conglomerate. He gave us Arab Money. He gave us Pass the Cavassier. <laughs> he gave us Light Your Ass on Fire. Like I said, he gave us the um, Break Your Neck. He gave us the Mariah, I Know What You Want, and he gave us the Janet. Like Buster is that dude. Like he's given us hit after hit after hit, and not just like, oh, this is a good song. He's given us like these huge hits that just don't stop and they still go. Like when they come on now, 
dangerous and put your hands where my eyes can see. I'm telling you, middle school tables across the country still to this day have been worn yeah. out because people are trying to do those beats. I rock with it. And I mean, I, I feel like it's close, but I think LL has that edge. I mean, it's so many songs I didn't even mention. I mean, he has the Around the Way Girl. I mean, how many bamboo earrings uh, does she need? We know that off off the top. You know, he gave us the, I mean, even the Fatty Girl with the with the FUBU album. Remember, that was a huge hit with Ludacris on there, too. And like I was saying, with the 2000s, he came strong in his third decade. He gave us Love You Better. We still play that with that Pharrell beat. Paradise with Anne-Marie, that Hush. I mean, Hate It or Love It, that head sprung. I mean, that was a huge song. You still hear dance troops go up to that. I don't know who called him Big Ellie. I never <laughs> called him Big called Ellie him. in my life. Nobody <laughs> called him that, but he gave us that. He gave us Baby with Dream back in 08. So I feel like he had so many tracks that... If you just do a 20, 25 song versus between the two of them, I feel like LL just has to come on top. He had those remixes. He had tracks with with Mashonda, with, with Montel Jordan, with with Michael Jackson, uh, Method and Red, Mary J. Blige. He had tracks. I mean, everybody. Eric Sermon, J-Lo, you know, so many different artists that, that he worked with as well. So overall, I got to rock with uh, LL Cool J. So, all right. So at this time, we're going to hand it to our producers, Naledi and Melissa. So anybody who knows Naledi knows she probably saw LL all greased up, biceps greased up, uh, you know, baby oil dripping off the shoulders back then. So she probably has a story about that that she can, that might give me the advantage with that. So let's see about that. Let's see. Now, lady, uh, what would you say about, who would you say would come on top, you know, in this battle? That was, that was harder than I thought. Uh, very much so. Um, and yes, I, I did see LL oiled up. <laughs> That's fine. I was in high school. <laughs> too young to be thinking them thoughts, but hey. And you look, I saw Busted too, and it's fine. I think like, I think wow. they're both great. I think they're both great. Uh, this is harder than I thought compared to some of the others where I was like, well, I don't. First, I didn't think the match made sense, and I think you know there are others that probably still don't think it makes sense. But with your arguments, um, I'm still not decided. Uh, I was really going with Buster for a while. And then, you know, you came back with some strong arguments for LL. But then you said Big Ellie. And I'm like, you almost lost me. <laughs> but <laughs> like literally almost lost right there. I was like, nope, nope. <laughs> I never heard it, never used it. But I'm going to go with a, a, a tie. I just think they're both really legendary and they're really different. So that's my vote unfortunately it's a tie okay okay all right well melissa let's see it. who do you who do you ride with i'm gonna actually echo everything that the lady said i when i first saw it i was like these two <laughs> like why why are you putting <laughs> these two uh together um but then y'all were naming off songs that i forgot about that i loved and um i just i was like okay this does make sense but i have no clue who i am going to vote for um so i too have to say that this is a time before i didn't mm. think it was going to be i didn't either honestly and now i'm over here like well damn maybe <laughs> i mean that's what it was artistic artistic's hey. argument was like kind of a1 because he had me like oh wait no nah, hold on right? i forgot about that song let me go back and look so yeah. i get it i mean i think overall uh, recency bias does always play a part. Buster's made more recent music, especially the last 10 years. And LL, you know, 
I mean, he came out way earlier, so it makes sense that he didn't have as much relevant recently. But overall, when you dig deep into it, I feel like it is very even. A lot of folks have been saying Buster should go against Ludacris or Missy, but that doesn't make sense to me because he's been around so much longer than both, really. And if it was videos, I would love to see a video battle with Missy and Buster. Missy and Buster video, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. but But this was a good one because, you know, both, you know, although Buster's not always acting he's also in television and film so yeah this was actually a really good argument yeah so it's it's a draw so this one there is no winner so you know what that means i need everybody out there on social media hashtag behind the wheels pod let us know who y'all think would come out on top in a, in a battle between ll and buster and with that that concludes this episode of behind the wheels um i am your host once again dj artistic find me at dj r-t-i-s-t-i-c on your uh, Twitter and your Instagram and R-T-I-S-T-I-C 310 on Twitch. EB, where can they find you? I'm found on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, TikTok, EB for Prez. That's E-B, the number four, and Prez is P-R-E-Z. You on TikTok? What you doing on there? I, I'm I'm on TikTok, but I'm just looking at videos. That's it. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, yeah. I, I'm about to say, I ain't seen you, I ain't seen you on there uh Sing along to no brownstone. Yeah, no, y'all, ain't got, y'all ain't got no dancers yet, but they coming. I need that no EB dance. I need that. That's that's the move for the fall. So I appreciate y'all for listening once again. And uh, yeah, stay tuned. We have a lot more coming for y'all for this season. This is Behind the Wheels. Out. Behind the Wheels is produced by Melissa D. Montz and the Lady Set. And the music is provided by Epidemic Sound.